Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Paul's letter to the house churches that are in Rome. Uh, see that, and we know if you know history, Rome at this point in time when the book was written, Rome was the seat of all power in the world. Now, obviously, we know that all power over the world exists in the courts of heaven, but as far as political power, military power, monetary power, all of that, uh, Rome was pretty much it. It was the empire that controlled just about everything at this point. And it had stretched out under the reign of Caesar Augustus. It had stretched out, I mean, larger than any other empire had been at that point in history. And uh, it was a force to be reckoned with. Just about every aspect of your daily life and your purpose was guided by this, prom- this, this common principle as, someone, uh, as a Roman citizen or someone under Roman rule. It was guided by this mantra, for the glory of Rome and for the glory of Caesar. You worked for Rome, you fought for Rome, you expected to be first and foremost loyal to Rome. It was nationalism to the hilt, and it was forced nationalism upon those who didn't even want it. Um, you were expected first and foremost to be loyal to it. So the call that we see from the Apostle Paul given to Rome to begin to give your allegiance to Jesus Christ through the gospel and through the glory and that you are working for a kingdom that is bigger than Rome, it was something that was so countercultural and it was revolutionary and they realized as well that if I follow this, if I follow this in my private life, I may not get in trouble, but if I follow this in my public life and if I really give myself over to the Lord, it could get me in trouble with Rome. And so this was the kind of the the thought that was given to every believer there in that day. And this is the true nature of the gospel, that the gospel is a revolutionary message. It is a revolutionary truth. It is always at all times countercultural. Because the culture is led, no matter how good a culture may be thinking they are, no matter how moral they may think they are, culture is always led by the flesh of men. We are always led by our fleshly desires until we give ourselves to the Spirit. The gospel is revolutionary, and it is meant to and has the power to change everything. It changes us from the inside out. And so it's with that in mind that we want to read, begin reading in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse number 12, because now we're going to begin to see another change that comes into place. We're going to see the Holy Spirit of God mentioned 19 times in chapter 8 alone. So now we're going to beginning to see, begin to see the implementation of the Holy Spirit this morning and see what the role of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. And it says this beginning in verse number 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons or God's daughters. And we'll come back to that word in just a moment. But in verse number 15, it says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Again, Paul reiterating the fact that we are not slaves to sin. We are now set free to live by Jesus Christ. And we are set free to live free of sin, not to go back into that. He says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you did receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, then we are also heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And I want to carry on into verse number 18. If you have that right there in your lap, it says, For I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be glorified by everything that is said and done and preached in this time right now. Holy Spirit, may you guide us in truth because Holy Spirit, we're talking about you this morning particularly. The power that you give us, the what you do, the role of your life in our, in, our, in our lives. And so I pray that you would do a work in us and speak to us. I pray this morning that if there's somebody that is here or watching or listening that does not know you as Savior, may they come to know you today. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen. So it tells us right here in, in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, what we see here is that we see that the Holy Spirit is going to be brought into the picture. That Jesus is our Savior. God is our Father. He's the one who came up with the plan of salvation. Jesus is the basis of the plan for salvation. And now we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is the gift that we receive after we come to know Jesus Christ. And he empowers us in the saved life. Because salvation is not just about the end result of going to heaven. Salvation is about the relationship that we have with him today. And Jesus lives in each and every one of us through the form and the presence of the Holy Spirit once we come to know him. And as I said before, and I've mentioned this before, Romans chapter 8 is mentioned as the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Many people throughout history in the worst struggles and seasons of their lives found this chapter alone to be their lifeline and to be their anchor of hope as they began to come out of depression or darkness or come out of anxiety or fear or even doubts in their own salvation. Johann Sebastian Bach, who was a great composer, wrote an entire symphony called Jesu mein Freud, which, means, which basically means Jesus my joy, and it is all based upon the verses of Romans chapter 8. Contemporary scholar N.T. Wright says that the themes of chapter 8 carries the power of the gospel in every single breath. And he says this, and he says, If the church of Jesus Christ would just hoist its sails and catch the wind of chapter 8, there is no telling what might happen in the world through Christ's church. The hope that exists in chapter 8 of Romans is a hope that we can grab onto and we can ride and it will have an impact and it will have a reverberation on our community, upon our state, upon our world, upon our nation, upon everyone. If we would just grab hold of this and live in the truth that we're looking at today and next week and the week after that. Pastor J.D. Greer brought up something that I've now taken as a personal challenge. You know, it, we're in the season of Lent and many people give th things up for Lent. What I'm doing is I'm going to take on a challenge during the season of Lent is I want to memorize word for word. I want to memorize the entire chapter of Romans 8 because it's, the Bible, we're told to hide God's word in our heart, right? And so we're to memorize that. So I want to memorize Romans chapter 8 because this truth is something that we need to carry with us and kind of call out of our memory bank and out of our heart's memory bank many times as we fight against, you know, the temptations and the lies of the enemy and things to carry us through there. So what is it? The question is, what is it that makes this chapter so great? Why are you so in love? with chapter 8. Some say that it's because of the emphasis of the Holy Spirit. And like I said, it's going to be mentioned over uh, about 19 times in this entire chapter. Others say that it's the fact that it talks about the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ. So many times throughout this passage, we see the assurance that once we are saved, we are always saved. And that is a, that is a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. It's called eternal security. Once we have come to know Jesus Christ, we are secure in him. In the book of John, it says that God takes us in his hand and he closes his hand upon, upon us once we are in Christ. And he says, no man can ever pluck you out of my hand. No one. No woman either. 
Okay? No man, woman, boy, girl. And as it says later on in the, in, in the chapter we're going to look at, there's neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers nor things to come nor things present can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are eternally secure in him. So some say that the reason chapter 8 is so great is because it expresses the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ. Or others say it's so great because it expresses the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us empowering. And I think why this chapter is so great is if you marry the two, we get the full understanding of what chapter 8 is really about. And that's what the big idea from this message really is. Is that assurance of our salvation or assurance or security in the Christian life is meant to come from intimacy that we have with the Holy Spirit of God. Many times, if you go through seasons of doubt in your Christian walk, you can look back. One of the first places I would suggest you to start to look back and say, when did these doubts begin? I can probably assure you that it, that it began at a time when you began to lack intimacy with the Lord. Because when we are walking closely with the Lord, he is holding us close and our confidence in him grows because his arms are around us. We are in his presence. We smell his fragrance and we know that he is there and assurance reigns supreme at that moment. But the minute we begin to turn away from intimacy with the spirit, doubts can come into play. Doubts can kind of tend to, to creep up. Kind of like a child who's maybe learning to, to swim or, or something like that, or a child who's learning to take their first steps. When they've got mom and dad's finger and they're walking along, they're confident as can be, but the minute they let go of that finger, every step they take away, they look back and they get a little bit more shaky, a little bit more shaky because the fear sets in. We are still children when it comes to God. No matter how old we may get, we are still his kids and we still have that, almost that baby-like attitude with him that the further we wander from him, the less our security and our confidence in him will be. But the closer we are to him, there's confidence that carries us. And so I think that's what it comes down to is assurance in the Christian life comes from intimacy with the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I want to look at three things today that the Holy Spirit has been given, uh, given to us to do. The Holy Spirit does more than this. This is not a comprehensive list, but there's three things specifically mentioned here. And if you have a, a, a Christian standard Bible like I do, the heading there, it says, it is the Holy Spirit's ministries. How the Holy Spirit ministers to us as believers in Jesus Christ. And the first thing is, and the first thing that we have to understand is the Spirit is going to strengthen us against sin. The Spirit is going to strengthen us against sin. This is how the Holy Spirit begins to give us assurance of our faith. Is he's first and foremost going to strengthen us against the sin that is constantly tempting us, against the sin that is constantly still around us in this world. You see, when the Holy Spirit will end his work of fighting sin will be the day that we stop fighting sin in heaven because sin will no longer be present. But until that day, sin is all around us, right? The Bible says in verse number 12, reviewing our text again, it says this. So then, brothers and, spirit, uh, brothers and sisters, we are no longer obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Again, like a broken record, Paul is like, remember what you were, enslaved to sin, owned by sin, obligated to the flesh, to give in to temptation every single day, all day long. But now, because of Christ, you now have freedom from that. You're not obligated to that anymore. He says this, so then, that, that word so then in the beginning of the, of, the, of the verse, it's almost like when we see the word therefore, right? And what do we do when we see the word therefore? We stop and we say, what's therefore, therefore, right? So what is so then doing for us? 
So then is looking back to the passage that we just looked at in chapters one, uh, verses 1 through 11, especially in verse number 1 when it says, There is thou, now therefore what? How much condemnation? Remember how much? There is no condemnation. Nada, zero, zilch, bupkis. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ for those who are in Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, since you are no longer condemned, so then you are no longer obligated to live by the ways of the flesh. Since Jesus put an end to sin through his death on the cross and he gave us power over sin through his resurrection, we are now no longer obligated, we're no longer bound, we're no longer trapped, we're no longer enslaved to live by the demands and the whims of the sin nature. I wish that this verse says, so that would say, so then you no longer are tempted by sin. That would be great. But it says we are not obligated to sin, which means... Temptation still is there, right? Jesus' death, and we have to understand this, Jesus' death freed us from the penalty of sin. He washed us clean and forgave us of sin, and it says we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but his resurrection gives us new life by the Holy Spirit, which releases us from the power over sin. So if you may need to write that down or remember this because it's very important. His death releases us or gives us freedom from the penalty of sin. I'm no longer obligated to pay the penalty for my sin anymore. But his resurrection has released me from the power of sin by the Holy Spirit. Which means I'm not obligated to sin anymore. Sin will still come knocking at my door. But I'm no longer obligated to say yes and open the door. This is why 2 Corinthians tells us that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and there is liberty because the Spirit has set us free from the power that reigned over us in sin. Now, look at verse number 13. We're given a very strong warning with this because if you live according to the flesh, you're gonna die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I know that this is beginning to sound like a broken record here, but we need to understand that the freedom from the power of sin does not mean that sin has no power to still prevail over us. Sin is still powerful. Satan is still a formidable foe. He still is. Sin is still very much alive. Every single human being saved or lost must never forget that. It's still a hungry predator that is walking around seeking whom it can devour. And it doesn't matter how strong your faith may be. Sin is still always there. Just like it says back in the book of Genesis, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. All the way back in the very book, first book of the Bible, it's telling us what sin does. Sin crouches at the door and waits. What I think is interesting is in Genesis, you see that sin is crouching at the door almost like a predator, right? Like a thief that's looking to get in, like peeking through, trying to see how it can pick the lock or get in. But then what does it say about Jesus in the book of Revelation and what he does at the door? He stands at the door of our heart and knocks at it. Jesus asks to come in. He doesn't force his way in. Sin is always looking for a way to sneak in. Jesus is that loving, merciful, respectful Savior that is always there. Says, if you will let me in, I will come in and fellowship with you. This is what Paul is saying right here. You have a choice. You can let sin creep in or you can let Jesus in and fellowship with you. You can let the Spirit have his way. And this is why Puritan pastor John Owen back years ago said this. Always be killing sin or it will always be killing you. Right? It's always ready. It's always on the hunt. It's always on the prowl because sin always has the nature of destroying us. Even though our sin may feel good for the moment, it's going to destroy. 
even though our sin may feel fun, even though our sin may be accepted by most of the people in the world, it's always going to have that component of killing us. It's always looking to do that. It's kind of like the woman that hit the news a few years ago in Pennsylvania. A woman who lived out in the woods of Pennsylvania had found, found this abandoned baby cub bear. All right, It was like brand newly born and she found it and she took it home and she said, I'm going to nurse this bear and I'm going to take care of it and I'm going to give it health and everything like that. And so she kept this bear as her pet living in her home and everything. And then nine years later it hit the news that a Pennsylvania woman was mauled to death by a bear in her house. And you go, duh, right? And when they were inter when the neighbors were interviewed, they're like, we never really got close to the lady because, you know, she had a bear living in her house, but she always seemed really nice to the bear. You know, she took care, she loved the bear. She even named him Teddy. It doesn't matter what you call that bear, Teddy is going to rip you apart because that's what bears do. No matter how much we nurture our sin, no matter how much we think it's okay, it's eventually going to destroy because that's the nature of sin. And it doesn't matter how skilled you are in Jesus Christ, sin is still going to have that deadly effect. It's going to affect our fellowship with God, and it's going to lead us away from that intimacy with the Spirit that we need to have assurance in Him. I love what Warren Wearsby says. He says, it's not enough for us to have the Spirit, because once we get saved, we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. It's not enough for us to have the Spirit. The Spirit has to have us. All right, catch this and understand this very, this is important. It's not just enough for us to have the Holy Spirit. And trust me, once you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. That is a gift that we are given. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it's not enough for us to possess the Holy Spirit. We must allow the Spirit to possess us. We must allow the Spirit to have us. And that's what verse number 12 and number 13 is saying. We'll only thrive over sin if we enlist the power of the Spirit to do that. And this is why some of you, myself included, are still trying to learn this the hard way. We're still trying to say, you know, I've got this besetting sin in my life. I've got this addictive thing going on. I've got this sin that I continue to struggle with. And I'm just, I've, just, I've just got to get stronger. Maybe if I just do this more. Maybe if I just do that. No, the key is... Get to the Spirit of God. Give the role of the Spirit greater place in your life. The Spirit is what gives us the power to be killing sin because if you're not trying to fight sin in the Spirit, speaking of bears, I heard one Texas pastor say, trying to fight sin in your own flesh is like trying to fight off a bear with an open-handed slap. It's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. So the question is, how do I fight sin? We give you five Practical steps that I, that, I, that I stole, actually. I'm just going to go ahead and say I stole them from Pastor J.D. Greer. These are beautiful steps that I wanted to give you. Here's how we know that we're giving the Spirit place in our life. Number one is when we engage in humble confession. When we engage in humble confession, this is best explained and how we understand it is best explained by the opposite. What we normally do is we normally try to hide our faults. We normally try to keep them to ourselves and hope against everything that they never come to the surface and we hope that people never find out. But the problem here is that there are certain things that only can be dealt with when they're brought into the light. There's some things in your life, there are some sins that we commit that are only able to be taken care of when they're brought into the light. It's kind of like the way people deal with mold and mildew in, in places. Mold and mildew thrives in dark, damp places, right? But the way you kill that off is to, bring, is to get, rid of the, get rid of all the moisture and then bring it into the light as well. 
That's the way some sin is in our lives. It's like spiritual mold and spiritual mildew that brought into the light of confession and brought into the light of verbally expressing what your sins are in your life can bring healing to you. It's like what James said in the book of James chapter 5, 16. He says, confess your sins one to another and he will give you healing. Confess our sins. And that's something that we don't do enough of in church today. How... Let me ask you, how excited would you be to come to church if before we let you in, you had to tell us all the sins you committed for the week? That's no fun, is it? But James says the best path to healing is to do just that. To confess our sins to each other, not so that we can look at it and judge one another, but so that we can pray for one another. And so then our sins can be healed. The next thing is that we give total surrender to God. Not just bits and pieces, but the whole thing. When I, when I think about total surrender, I always go back because I, I like to eat, right? That's, why, that's how you know that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good Christian, right? And, and you know when you go to potlucks or, or, or cookouts and you get those compartment plates? Those are the best. Not, I'm not talking about those circle ones, which is three compartments. That's not enough. That's not enough. It's those big long trays that's got like six or seven different compartments in it. That's the stuff I'm talking about. But this is what we try to do. We try to live our lives like Tupperware. We want a little bit of God over here in this section, but we don't want it to cross-contaminate with the other stuff, so we put him in a little section and say, God, you stay right here, and this is where you are. We're never going to have full assurance of our faith when we only let the Spirit have one piece of the container. Never. So if we want full assurance of our faith and full assurance of our salvation and full assurance of what God is doing in our lives, we have to give him total surrender. This means that there's no negotiations with God. By the way, we're only going to get through point number one today. I just thought I'd lay that out there, okay? This means that there's no negotiations with God, okay? Most people embrace their Christian life asking this. And this is how, for, especially during my, during my high school days, college days and things like this, is the way I would live my Christian life. What do I need to do to be considered a good Christian? What do I need to do? And the reason I was asking that was not because I was so invested in being a good Christian. You know why I was asking that? For the same reason you asked it. I want to know how bad can I be without getting the label bad Christian. I was just asking it in a nice way. What do I need to do for everybody to think I'm a good Christian? What that's really saying is, how much can I live like hell and not smell like smoke? That's really what we're saying. When we reduce it to a checklist, it's, well, I've done this, this, and this, so that means I'm a good Christian. But when God looks at us, he sees that our heart is actually still set on how much can I do and still get away with he realizes that we don't have a heart that is set on him. And man may look on the outward appearance, but guess where the Bible says God looks? He looks on the heart. He looks past the show. He looks past the smoke and mirrors. He looks past the painted on smile and he sees the heart. And he knows at all times whether the heart is set on him or whether the heart is set somewhere else. And the way that we give our heart to God is to give the Holy Spirit place in our lives. See, Jesus, Jesus isn't just an ally that we negotiate with for things in our life. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat in prayer sessions with the Lord and said, Lord, if you'll just do this, I promise I'll never. Or if you'll do this, I promise I will. Prayer is not a negotiating table Prayer is coming to the table of the Lord to feast upon his goodness and his grace and his mercy. Because the truth is, none of us could bring anything into salvation and none of us bring anything into negotiation with the Lord in our Christian life either. It's all based on him. 
And it's all based upon the power of the Spirit in us to begin with. It takes total surrender to the Lord. See, he's not an ally to negotiate with or to employ. He's a king that we surrender to. The only negotiation that God is interested in with us is us bowing on our face, prostrate, prostrate before the Lord, and saying, God, I surrender to you as Lord and king in my life. There is no surrender. There is, there is no negotiating with the king because the king already has all rights and authority. The, th the third thing that we do after total surrender is we have to constantly look for reassurance in the gospel. See, the spirit will break sin's intimidating hold when he reminds you of your full acceptance with the Father. Sin can intimidate us. Sin can make us feel as though we're weak. Sin can entrap us and make us feel like there's never any way I can get out of this. How many of you have ever been in a situation, you don't have to raise your hand, you've been in a situation or you're in one right now where you've got this sin that you feel like it's not getting anywhere and you've asked God, God, forgive me, God, give me power and you don't feel that power coming yet and, it's and so you're just thinking this is the way it's gonna be. It can be difficult when we get in those sins and we think there's no way out. But, but friend, I promise you, based upon the authority of God's word, there is no temptation given us what God has not given us, a way of escape, the book of Colossians tells us. He will provide us a way of escape and that way of escape is the spirit of God and it is re-preaching the gospel to us that when we are sinners, Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. When you're in the midst and in the aftermath of that sin and you remember Christ loves me, not loved me, loves me continually and he gave himself for me. And God always has his hand out to forgive. And Jesus is always saying, come to me who are weary and tired and I will give you rest. I read something in, in, a, in a book the other day and I really suggest this book for, for, for everyone, honestly. It's called The Imperfect Disciple, written by Jared Wilson. It's amazing. But he brought something up and I thought it was so, like, amazing. That part of you that you try to hide, that one that, that you know, it, the unpainted face, the one that we try to cover up and don't want anybody to know about, that's the one that Jesus loves. God doesn't just love the best version of myself. God loves the worst version of myself. He loves the worst version of who we are. That's the grace that we have in him. So we need the reassurance of the gospel, just like the woman that was caught in adultery. What did Jesus tell the woman in adultery after everybody had walked away? And he looked at her and he said, who is left to condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you either, which is exactly what we see in Romans chapter eight, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And then he says, go and sin no more. What's interesting is how Jesus did this. He put acceptance in front of change, right? He says, I don't condemn you, which means I accept you. I don't look at you like a woman caught in adultery. I just look at you as a child of God. I look at you as someone that I love. And then in that acceptance, he said to her, go and sin no more. He didn't say, go and sin no more and then you won't be condemned. No, that's work salvation. He said, I accept you, go and sin no more. That's the reassurance that we have in the gospel. It's easy to get caught up in thinking, man, I'm faking this whole Christian thing. And let's be honest, some of us are there's things going on that we don't want anybody to know about. It's a dark season of the soul maybe for you. 
You need the reassurance of the gospel that no matter, listen, if you're saved in Jesus Christ and in sin, you're not near as dark as you were when you were lost outside of Jesus Christ and in sin. We need the reassurance of the gospel. We also need number four, another practical step, is we need to memorize specific scriptures. Because how do we dispel the lies of the enemy? With the truth of God. Listen, Jesus did that on the mountain of temptation, didn't he? Three times Satan came to Jesus and said, man, you know, you need to do this. And he tempted Jesus in every way that he could be tempted. And what did Jesus do each time he was tempted? He looked at Satan, he said, get behind me, Satan. And then immediately out of his mouth, he shot off scripture that he had memorized. Well, it's easy for Jesus to memorize scripture because every word that he says is basically ended up being scripture. But how did Jesus fight Satan? He fought him with the truth of God's word. How did he fight Satan's lies and his deceit and his manipulation and his temptation? He fought it with the truth of God's word. Why do we think we need anything more or anything less than what Jesus our Savior needed? If Jesus needed scripture to fight temptation, how much more do we need that? Jesus used the sword of the spirit and it's our weapon for battle, spiritually speaking. If you try to live your Christian life without arming yourself with the word of God, you're going into a gunfight without, without even a toothpick is what you're doing. And, and, and let me say this too. The bit of scripture that you're getting at this point in time every week in church or through virtual worship, that's not going to be enough to sustain you. It's not going to be enough to sustain you. If you're only feasting on the word of God for 40 minutes a week, it's not going to get you through the daily temptation that you have crouching at your door every single day. If sin is crouching at your door every day, how much do we need the scripture to set us free from that every single day? We need that every single day. So we need to memorize the promises of Scripture. Now, if you're looking to start memorizing Scripture, I would not recommend starting with the book of Numbers. I wouldn't do it. Don't, don't, don't go there. You definitely don't need to go start memorizing the book of Song of Solomon. It's not going to set you down a, a, a healthy path, okay? You need to start memorizing things that give you promises. One habit that I've had for a few years now is each day, of the, every, each day I rise, I read the chapter that correlates with the day of the month of Proverbs because there's 31 Proverbs, 31 chapters of Proverbs. I read the, the, the one that corresponds with that. And, and as I've gone, I've begun, become finding myself that I haven't really set out to memorize them, but they have been laying in my spirit every day. The book of Psalms, the promises of God's word, Romans chapter eight, man. Romans chapter eight is going to be big to help us. The book of Colossians has, been, has some powerful verses that will give us promises. And I love this. His love never fails and his word never fails. But if sin is continually crouching at the door, then we continually need the word of God. We continually need it. And that's how we know that the spirit begins to speak and begins to move in us. And then lastly, the last practical point, and that's where we're going to end today. I knew when I wrote this sermon, we weren't getting through all of it. But you know, hope springs eternal, right? Don't just avoid sin. Pursue wisdom. It's not enough just to avoid the sin in our lives. We have to pursue wisdom, okay? And this is the way a lot of us think is like, you know, when we get tempted, we think, okay, I'm going to make sure that I put as much distance as I can between me and the temptation. And we need to do that, but that's not going to be enough. Because sin has a way of finding us. Sin is aggressive, 
A, pred- a bear doesn't just sit in the woods and wait for his prey to walk past him. A bear is always on the, the move for it. A lion, just like the Bible says, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he can devour. Sin is always on the move looking for us, which means that we also need to not just avoid sin, we need to pursue wisdom to combat that sin. So we pursue wisdom by memorizing scripture. We pursue wisdom by beginning to see the world the way that God intends. See, most people, most Christians are content to live their life seeing how close they can get to sin without crossing the line. And what I always see happen, this is, this is, this is kind of the, the descent into sin that we do. We recognize sin. We're curious of sin, so we get closer. We get manipulated by sin and say, you know what, it must not be that bad. So we justify sin and say, God really doesn't have a problem with it today. Maybe back then he did, but today it's different. Which to that I say, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But then we say, we justify and say, God's going to be okay with it. And then we realize, oh, wait a minute. The spirit begins setting off an alarm in us and say, no, God is not okay with this. No, this is still leading to a problem in your life. Why are you continuing to engage in it? And this is the descent that we always go through. It's not just enough to say, I'm going to stay away from sin because sin will come closer. We have to fight it with the wisdom of God. So instead of saying, how close can I get to sin without going over the edge? We need to ask, how close can I walk with my Savior? How close can I walk with my Savior? Now what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that we need to be like, like weird looking religious zealots. We are to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world. That means we look at this and we say, is my heart set upon God or is my heart set upon sin? What's the wisest thing to do? Check our life against the uh, alignment with the Spirit's will for us. It's because the role of the Spirit is not just to change my behavior. The role of the Spirit is to change my heart. If you live your life and all you ever do is change your behavior, but your heart is still set on you, You've missed, you've missed it. The Spirit exists inside of us to lead us to the beauty of Christ, to where there is nothing that can be more attractive and more beautiful than our Savior. Will sin be tempting? Yes. But the closer we draw to Christ, sin begins to lose its bite. Begins to lose its bite. The role of the Spirit is to change our heart and he wants to give us a heart that is still attracted to the, that, is, that may still be still attracted to the allure of sin but is overwhelmed by the beauty of Christ in us. Will sin be attractive? Yes, that's just going to be the nature of sin. It's always going to be pleasurable for a season. But the Spirit exists inside of us to continually say, but Christ is more beautiful. Christ is more beautiful. And that's what I want to close with this morning just to ask you, because everybody I see in this room right now, I know I've heard each one of you give a personal testimony of salvation. How beautiful is Christ in your life right now? Is he the most beautiful thing to you? Do all other things on earth pale in comparison? Just like we sang this morning, there's nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're my living hope. Just your presence, Lord. Just your presence. And his presence in us is the Holy Spirit. So the question I ask this morning is, is the Holy Spirit leading you? Because the Holy Spirit strengthens us in the fight against sin. We got through one point today. 
I told you Romans 8 was deep. I told you it was. But those five practical points, man, this is how we know that we're allowing the Holy Spirit to fight. We've got to give the Spirit the space to fight for us. Because when we fight ourselves, we don't have the proper weaponry. This is why Paul later on says that we've got this spiritual armor that we, that we grab onto. And it's all from within the Spirit. So as we bow our heads this morning and as we close our eyes, and if you're home this morning and you're worshiping with us virtually as well, just, just be in an attitude of prayer right now. If you have a need that's heavy on your heart or you say, man, I've, I've just got some stuff that I am struggling with. I've got some sin that just, it's like you said, it's crouching at the door every single day. It's crouching at the door every single day. Understand this, that sin is not going to knock. Jesus is the one knocking. You can open the door and let Jesus in and he will come in as it says in Revelation and he will have relationship with you and fellowship with you to where he is what's more beautiful. But if you're having struggle, you're having temptation, like James said, confession is the key to healing. Maybe you need to come today or maybe you need to talk to somebody and say, hey, I'm struggling with this and I just need you to pray with me. And here's what we have to promise one another because there's far too much of this going on today and in churches is there's a lot of judgment over people for their sin. And this is why we don't want to confess. Let's just com commit. Instead of condemn, let's commit to pray for one another in love. So if there's something you need to confess today, come and do that. Heavenly Father, will you have your will and way in this invitation and do as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand... Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.